we should be able to use harm reduction and abstinence-based approaches and recovery-based all in the same lovely package and basket. Harm reduction is more than just like giving supplies and giving a place for someone to use. It's connection, it's love, it's compassion, it's culture, it's language. So even if their end goal is to stop using substances, really just being there for a person is reducing their harms, regardless if their end goal is to, to stop using or to keep using. Really like a meal, dry socks, a hug, like those are all harm reduction. Harm reduction is my entire life. It's all I think about. I dream about harm reduction. It's everything to me. Hello, and welcome to Addiction Practice Pod, a podcast from the BC Centre on Substance Use about approaches to substance use, care, and treatment. This is a podcast for healthcare providers focused on issues in British Columbia. This season, we'll be spotlighting Indigenous perspectives on topics around substance use and addiction. We'll also talk about the importance of Indigenous-specific approaches to harm reduction. And we'll focus on issues relevant for Indigenous people who use substances and discuss strengths-based approaches for all healthcare providers. We're recording this on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. The reach of this work touches on over 200 First Nations in BC. Hi, I'm David Ball, a journalist with a decade of reporting on substance use, mental health, public health policies, and Indigenous issues. In this series, we'll hear from Indigenous clinicians and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Today, we're exploring some of the complexities of abstinence-based perspectives, which are centered around completely stopping drug or alcohol use. We'll also talk about the importance of Indigenous-specific approaches to harm reduction. And to help me do so, I'm joined by Dr. Nolan Hop-Wo, a medical officer for mental health and wellness at the First Nations Health Authority and a trained psychiatrist. He's also a member of the Métis Nation of Greater Victoria. Thanks so much for being here, Nolan. Thanks for having me, David. So let's just jump right in. Historically, most mainstream substance use treatment and service offerings have been centered around the idea of abstinence. From a medical lens, could you explain some of the benefits of abstaining from substances to start? Yes, of course, David. Abstaining, as well as reducing alcohol consumption, comes with a host of benefits to one's physical health. These benefits include the possibility of losing weight as alcohol contains calories and improves sleep quality because alcohol can interrupt REM sleep cycles. Reducing use or abstaining from alcohol will also decrease risks of various types of cancers, including breast cancers and gastrointestinal cancers, such as hepatocellular, pancreatic, colorectal, and esophageal cancers. Abstaining from heavy alcohol use will also lessen risks for heart failure, liver diseases, and some types of dementias. It's important to recognize that abstinence-based treatments have to be a person's own choice. And one of the main benefits of abstinence uh, include uh, no longer needing to put yourself at risk to having to access the unregulated uh, toxic drug supply, and as well as being able to access supports which may only be available to people who are uh, not using drugs or alcohol. 
So like, for example, some of those programs might include like housing options as well as employment options. And even within housing options, they may include formalized housing programs as well as family supports. For example, a family member saying you need to be sober to stay at the house. There's also less stigma attached to those who are abstaining from drugs and alcohol. And this stigma may be self-stigma as well as stigma people receive both from family and community members. And I guess one more point would be that some people who are going through abstinence-based treatment programs may also have certain stipulations or obligations that are placed onto them. An example could be that they're on probation or parole and that one of the rules of this needs to be that they need to be abstaining from either drugs or alcohol. That's a really good point. I wanted you to talk, though, from your expertise about maybe some of the risks or potential harms associated with those approaches. Sure. So some of the more serious potential harms with abstinence-only approaches include that when you abstain from some certain drugs, such as alcohol being an example or benzodiazepines, you can increase the risk of people having a seizure and death when they stop using these drugs abruptly, specifically called a withdrawal seizure. And this is why it's important to have a plan if you're going to stop using some of these drugs or alcohol especially if you stop using them quickly. So a plan might include going into medical detox or at least working with someone who has knowledge of chemical withdrawals when you are trying to achieve abstinence. Another issue is that when people are in abstinence-based programs, it's not uncommon that people do relapse on drugs or alcohol. And this can be problematic as well at times. For example, if you are in a program and then you do relapse on opioids, your body has a, a decreased tolerance to the, the opioids. And even within two to three days of not being on opioids, if you go back to using the regular dose that you were used to using, they can feel more potent or powerful to you and that can cause an overdose and it can also cause death in some cases. I think that's a really interesting point. And I know that a lot of people who are overdosing right now have been involved with the criminal justice system somehow and getting out of correctional facility and having a fatal overdose. So I think with Indigenous communities, I think it's really important to acknowledge that would be a disproportionate impact because of the levels of incarceration too. Yeah, no, that's a, a very good point. So it seems like there's a a bit of a perceived dichotomy, I would say, between abstinence-based and harm reduction approach. How does that sort of divide or dichotomy impact people who are trying to access care for substance use, do you think? Yeah, so one of the issues with viewing abstinence-based treatment as a dichotomy, rather than viewing it as part of a spectrum with harm reduction being on that spectrum with abstinence, is that it tends to simplify addiction treatment and I don't want to give people the perception that treatment needs to be complicated, but I think it's important that we leave space for people, for families and communities, in order to choose options that best suit their need or their community's need. Hmm. So in the context of Indigenous peoples, can you think of any additional complexities that come to mind when thinking about abstinence-based approaches to substance use? Yeah, when thinking about Indigenous peoples, so we're talking about First Nations, Inuit and Métis people, one way to kind of think about this is to conceptualize things through the lens of colonization. So it's important to look at the historical impact of colonization, 
how colonization currently is impacting us as well as how it will affect us in the future and how that will affect our working relationship with, for example, government agency. So autonomy or self-government for Indigenous peoples as well as our communities is the right for us to make our own decisions. And for many years, for hundreds of years, our voices were silenced, discarded, and they were uh, discredited. So I think one way in which we can kind of look at this would be reframing how we work with Indigenous communities. And one way to do that is to look at how we kind of generate questions. So we kind of want to be more, we being the government or a governmental agency, would try and be more collaborative or more curious rather than uh, paternalistic. So an example in regards to abstinence-based programming could be rather than uh, coming in as a government agency and asking a question, which can be totally well-meaning, for example, how do we admit more of your Indigenous people into an abstinence-based treatment facility, which is kind of paternalistic and kind of has the, the end goal already in mind. If we kind of flip that into more of a collaborative approach, it would look something more like, you know, going into a community and asking questions like, what is substance use like in your community? And being curious about it and wanting to learn about it. How can we work together? And just acknowledging that the community itself has a lot of expertise That's a really great point, Nolan. And today, I'm really excited that we'll hear uh, from Keisha Cleaver, who is working as a harm reduction program advisor at the First Nations Health Authority. I'm wondering if there's anything you're particularly interested in asking about or discussing today. Yeah, I mean, I am excited to hear about the work that Keisha is doing. I'd like to know how Keisha engages with communities, what kind of tips that she has for engaging with Indigenous communities, especially for our non-Indigenous listeners. I just want to let our listeners know in this episode, we will be discussing themes around the toxic drug crisis, as well as the historical and ongoing impacts of colonialism. Of course, we recognize this may bring about unpleasant feelings and emotions, so please take care while listening. So let's meet our guest today, Keisha Cleaver. Keisha is of mixed Indigenous ancestry from Tlaman Nation. Keisha has 13 years of experience in harm reduction as a child and youth care counselor in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Now, she works as a harm reduction program advisor with the Four Directions team at First Nations Health Authority. Thanks so much for being here, Keisha. We're really happy to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So as I said in the intro, I'm I'm a journalist who's worked on a lot of these issues for years. And uh, my own ancestry is uh, Scottish and Irish ancestry, and I grew up in uh, Algonquin Territory around Ottawa. Um, And of course, I'm here on uh, Slewatu, Squamish and Musqueam Territories in Vancouver. Amazing. So yes, so my name is Keisha Cleaver. I am mixed Indigenous. I am a Tullaman First Nation and Scottish on my mother's side and I'm British on my father's side. My grandfather is uh, Larry Blayhut. My great grandmother was Elsie Courtney and my great great grandmother was Lena Galagos. Most of the people I've met on the Tulama Nation, we are related to Lena in some way. I've been told she was a great Catholic woman. She had lots of babies. So I have lots of lots of relatives on the on the nation. And I'm always so happy to get back there when I can. But currently I'm residing on West Bank First Nation land on their traditional territory within West Kelowna. And we're also here with Dr. Nolan Hopwo, who's joining us as our clinical co-host today. 
Thanks, David. Tanchi Kiwao, Nolan Hopwo, Daisha Nakashin, and Mitchif Nia. My heritage is I am Chinese Canadian through my father and Metis through my mother. And I am joining us from the traditional unceded territory of Esquimalt and Songhees nations, which is in the colonial known as Victoria. Keisha, can we just start out, you know, very basically, how did you end up working in harm reduction? Yeah, thank you um, so much for that question. So I got into harm reduction because as a youth, I was very active in my substance use. I ended up unhoused right before my 20th birthday and in lots of precarious living situations. When I decided to go on my wellness recovery journey three weeks before I turned 21, I really wanted to start doing something more. I knew that I wasn't just going to continue working retail, continue working in call centers. I knew that my my call was greater than that. So I actually went for lunch with a teacher I had in high school who was the only teacher who really like believed in me and really like took me under one, really took care of me. So I met with her and she was like, you should go into this program that my daughter went into called Youth Justice at Douglas College. And I looked into it and I was like, yes, like I want to work with youth who struggle with substance use. And you had to remain clean, which I hate that word, but that was their word. So you had to remain clean and sober for two years before you could apply for the program. So worked on myself. I started volunteering at the downtown Eastside Women's Shelter, trying to do whatever I could to kind of immerse myself in what I thought that my calling was. I got into Douglas. I ended up doing my diploma and my degree there. And at the same time, I had never heard of harm reduction. Then when I did my diploma in 2012, it wasn't something that was like part of the curriculum. Um, So I was really the kind of the only person who came from lived experience and really wanted to continue working in substance use. At the same time, one of my outlets as a teenager was I was a, a raver. I went to a lot of underground raves. Back then, they were still all night. They were still in warehouses. You still had to like, you know, call a pager and find out where the locations were. And I was someone who definitely had ambulances called on me more than once at a rave. And I also wanted to give back to that community. So when I started doing my diploma, I reached out to Shambhala Music Festival. And they were like, yes, like, come be a part of our our harm reduction team. And I went to Shambhala and I was just immersed in this world of harm reduction and drug checking and just supporting people um, and any part of their journey. And I had never seen work like that. I'd never seen safe use before. I, it was like this whole new world to me. And I was like, yes, this, this is it. Like supporting people who want to use and who are using is like where I want to be. So I just started looking for any job, any volunteer, any opportunity I could in looking up harm reduction. And I just started getting some super, super amazing opportunities. And it's just built up to now where I'm the provincial harm reduction program advisor for First Nations Health Authority. I never, ever thought that would ever be something that I would even get the chance to do. And I feel so lucky and so grateful. And I just like harm reduction is my entire life. It's all I think about. I dream about harm reduction. Like it's my whole life, my whole world. It's everything to me. Thanks so much for sharing from your own personal journey. Could you talk, Keisha, about how those experiences, as well as your professional ones, have maybe impacted or changed the way that you understand recovery and substance use overall? Yeah. So when I first started on my wellness journey, definitely it was like clean and sober. I didn't go through AA. My dad went through AA a couple years after I started on my wellness journey, and I used to go to meetings with him, and I always considered myself like clean and sober. 
But if I ever did like smell cannabis or take a sip of someone's drink, I always felt super guilty and didn't want to tell anybody because I'm like, oh my gosh, that means I have to go back to zero again. And being working now in indigenous harm reduction and looking at different ways of seeing recovery and different ways of seeing the wellness journey is that you don't have to go back to zero. And I think that's really important because I know when my dad had his first slip, when he was on his wellness journey, it almost killed him because he didn't want to go back to his AA buddies and take his 24 hour chip again. He went missing for 10 days and we didn't know where he was. And it's because there was so much shame. There's so much stigma there of the fact that you have to go back to zero in that community. But I also want to say that like AA saved my, saved my dad's life. And I'm so grateful for that. And I get to have a relationship with him now. And he gets to have a relationship with my son. And that's so important. But what society puts on what looking like what being clean and sober looks like um, doesn't always work for everybody. So I think that there should be like a menu of options and that people should be able to go on their own journey. I think it's really important, Keisha, that you are able to share some of your personal narrative and your family's yeah. experience, because I think it's very powerful and it helps illustrate what we as Indigenous people go through and how our treatment options differ. Yes. I'm hoping that you'll be able to maybe explain or share some experiences you have facilitating workshops within community and yeah, specifically about maybe how Indigenous harm reduction may differ from the idea of westernized harm reduction. Yeah. So when we think about harm reduction for substance use specifically, we think about those westernized approaches where it's naloxone training, sterile supplies like syringes and pipes, safe consumption, safer supply, which is getting a lot of media attention right now, opioid agonist therapy, low barrier housing. But when we think about indigenizing harm reduction, it's really like more than that. It goes beyond keeping people safe and safer while they use substances. It's um, really looking at undoing um, the harms of colonialism, which has put First Nations people, Inuit people, Métis people at such a higher risk for harmful substance use and, and of death, which we're seeing um, with the numbers right now. From last year's data, we don't have the rest of 2023's data yet, but uh, First Nations people were dying six times the rate of other BC residents, and First Nations women were dying at almost 12 times the rate of other female residents. So we can't just take westernized approaches and like a one-size-fits-all approach. We need to look at other ways where we can support Indigenous people on their wellness journey. So really, this means like decolonizing and indigenizing substance use. This looks like connecting people to their culture, rebuilding their relationships, looking at the interconnectedness between like our human world, our spirit world and our natural world. Substance use shouldn't be seen as as a moral issue. And one of the reasons it has been is because of racism, is because of colonialism. And we need to use another approach to support people where they're at on their on their journey. But it still seems to be mm -hmm. like when you talk to some communities, they are very kind of pro-abstinence based. And I think it's important that our listeners have an understanding of maybe why that is or where that comes from. So when I go into Indigenous communities or I'm invited into Indigenous communities, a lot of communities have checkpoints and are very like no substances. We're like a dry community. And why those exist is because of racism, is because of colonialism. Because like starting in like the 1500s, when like fur traders came over from, from Europe, they were using alcohol as, as trading mechanisms. So they would trade alcohol with the first peoples and trade them for furs and tools and all the things that were on the, on the trade circuit. 
and alcohol was the preferred substance use for Europeans and then for Indigenous people once it came over here. But in like the late 1800s, they started to see people who use substances use alcohol as like immoral and as like anti-religious. And so that's when in the late 1800s, it became illegal for Indigenous people to to consume alcohol. Colonizers came over here and they were giving everyone alcohol and then they took it away and then they were like, substances are bad. And that was it. And we had in Canada for over a hundred years, some kind of alcohol law against indigenous people. So starting in 1886, all the way into 1987, in the Indian Act, there was something to do with alcohol prohibition towards indigenous people. So some of the first laws for that was up to six months in jail or up to a $300 fine if an Indigenous person was found to be consuming alcohol. And in the beginning, some of those laws were that if a white person found an Indigenous person using substances and they reported them, they would get half that fine. So it was used as a control mechanism, but also as like a reward system to non-Indigenous people to like tell on their Indigenous neighbors and community members. So the idea was if an Indigenous person wanted to continue to use alcohol or access alcohol, they had to assimilate. I love this in the in the Indian Act. So they had to assimilate into civilization, which is like just so it's such garbage. But if an Indigenous person wanted to consume alcohol, they had to uh, demonstrate good moral character. And that included sobriety. So they could hand over their status and become, you're seen as European, and then they could access alcohol, and they could access Canadian citizenship if they decided to renounce their, their indigeneity. And there was some kind of law in that, like I said, till 1987, which is crazy. I was born in 1989. So that's really like only 30, almost 37 years that there has not been an alcohol law in the Indian Act. And this was pre-war on drugs. You know, you mentioned all of this sort of history that really feeds into these I guess, notions, concepts that have been imposed on Indigenous people. I'm wondering, could you maybe talk about, you know, given that the abstinence-based perspectives have a history in this sort of context, how do you mm-hmm. navigate this? Like you're working in the harm reduction field, in the substance use field. It sounds very complex, and yet you're supporting the needs of communities. Tell me about that. Yeah, so part of the program that I work for with the First Nations Health Authority, I'm on the Four Directions team. So we are a multidisciplinary team under the Chief Nursing Officer, and we really look at supporting health centers and nurses and anyone within that little bubble in community to be able to keep people safe and alive. So one of the programs that I facilitate actually is our Not Just Naloxone program. So our Not Just Naloxone program is a two-day and it's a train-the-trainer model. So we go into communities that we're invited to or we do it virtually. And it's different from existing naloxone training is because we really look at interweaving healing work and Indigenous ways of knowing and being into the toxic drug crisis. We center intergenerational strengths. We prioritize storytelling. We lean on elders and, and knowledge keepers and people with living experience for their um, expertise, for their feedback. So it's an ever-evolving program. So when this program was developed, it was developed in response to the toxic or to the public health emergency and now to the toxic drug crisis. We developed a program where we go into communities and talk about stigma. We talk about how to indigenize the work. We talk about 
more than just the substance and how to reverse an overdose. We talk about racism and prohibition and really dismantling people's thoughts on why communities are abstinence-based, why our healthcare system is really abstinence-based. And then our team with FNHA of the Four Directions team, we took over the, the training in 2020. And since then, we've done 30 virtual trainings and 41 in-person um, community trainings. And I've gotten to go to many of those and going into communities and talking about harm reduction. Like my first couple, it was really challenging because sometimes you're going into communities and their senior leadership don't want you there. They want you to come in and talk about like, how we can get everyone who's using substances out of the community, how we can get the drug dealers out of the community. They don't want to talk about stigma and how to love people who use substances. And then really when we get to the end of end of our visit there, being able to have these conversations and just seeing like light bulbs go off in people's heads is like just so amazing. And of course, like not everybody is going to agree with harm reduction and that is okay. Like harm reduction, it shouldn't be in its own silo. All paths lead to wellness, whether it's harm reduction, whether it's treatment, whether it's programs, whether it's stab stab stabilization, there we go, whether it's recovery and support and aftercare, all of these things should be able to live together in harmony and people should be able to do what works best for them. Communities should be able to do what's best for them. I'm just going to switch gears maybe slightly here and just ask, so when we're working with a client who has kind of an abstinence-based perspective or preference, I'm wondering if you can provide some tips on how we can explore that with the client in kind of a safe and a respectful way. Yeah, of course. So when we want to support people who are using substances, who want to follow abstinence, really like everything should be client-centered, person-first, whatever they need. But the main um, ways that we approach the work on my team is we want to prevent people from dying. We want to create a range of treatment options and we want to support people on their healing journey. So whatever that means to them. And if their end goal is to be abstinent, then that should be supported. But also like harm reduction is more than just like giving supplies and giving a place for someone to use. It's connection, it's love, it's compassion, it's culture, it's language. So even if their end goal is to stop using substances, really just being there for a person is reducing their harms, regardless if their end goal is to, to stop using or to keep using. Really like a meal, dry socks, a hug, like those are all harm reduction. And those have nothing to do with someone's substance use. Um, I've worked with a lot of people who like the, the clinicians are very abstinence-based and um, being able to change how they see things about how, yeah, harm reduction isn't just, here's some condoms, here's some needles, here's some crack pipes. It's so much more than that. It's being able to meet somebody where they're at and support somebody. Yeah, that makes sense, Keisha. So David and I were earlier, were talking about abstinence-based recovery versus harm reduction. And I'm curious to see how you would see abstinence space working in harmony with harm reduction or how those approaches would fit together. Yeah, that's great. So it doesn't have to be either or, it's both. So say we have a magic wand, we do the magic wand, the province has enough beds for every single person who wants to go into recovery, everyone can go into treatment, but we still have to keep people alive until they can get there because dead people don't recover. So if the province's end goal is to save money, so that's a big thing that gets talked about all the time is budget, harm reduction still saves money because if we're providing 
a place for people to use and safe supplies and even safer supply substances. It really cuts down on people who are going in and out of incarceration. It cuts down on bloodborne illnesses. It cuts down on survival crime because if people don't need to steal to get money to get substances, then they wouldn't go to jail. And also, if we're keeping people safe with safe supplies, then they won't get HIV necessarily. They won't get hep C necessarily. So really, that person is going to cost the province less money in the long run if we provide them harm reduction tools until they can get into all these magical treatment recovery beds that the province is making. So really, it's I don't see harm reduction and recovery being either or. I see it being both and I see it being melded together. I can't imagine what it would have been like for me if I had been using substances now. Like when I used to work in substance use with youth, I used to say like when I was a youth, you could pick up drugs off the ground at a, at a festival, at a rave, even in the downtown east side and take it. And you weren't afraid of dying. You were afraid of it being an upper instead of a downer or hallucinogen instead of a downer. But now you could take something and die the first time. If I, I had been using now, I probably would be dead before I could even go on this journey. And then I wouldn't have my son. I wouldn't have my husband. I wouldn't have all the things I get to now enjoy being in my mid-30s for things I did when I was a teenager or in my early 20s. So we should be able to use harm reduction and abstinence-based approaches and recovery-based all in the same lovely package and basket. When you talk about this kind of balancing act that a community can do and in response to this, you know, very life and death, crisis, this emergency. I'm wondering, you know, are, is there any best practice for meeting individuals where they're at when it comes to keeping them safe, helping them attain their goals, helping, you know, reduce the harms? Yeah. So we support lots of communities that are abstinence-based or where, like in the community I come from, my cousin works the front desk at the health center. So say I was struggling with my substance use, the last place I'm going to want to go is to the health center. So we've worked with lots of communities to make harm reduction easy to access, but not going to cost them their housing or their community or their children and really be able to keep them in the community and keep them safe, but also keep the community happy. So there's one community in the North that them. It wasn't a safe place for people to come to the health center to access harm reduction supplies. So we worked with the nurse and she put a laundry basket out back behind the health center so people could access it. And then people were accessing it. So then in the snow, they got a covered tote and they put stuff in the covered tote. And then it was doing so well. And the community was like, hey, this is great. Like people are accessing this but we're not having disturbances in the health center and chief and council aren't getting lots of phone calls from people being like, why are there so many people accessing services? Then they built this beautiful shed out back and it's painted with the medicine wheel and people can go in and access it and they can get traditional medicines, but they can also get their naloxone kit or they can also get sterile and clean supplies. So being able to balance keeping people safe and alive in communities where maybe the community isn't ready to have it on the forefront or they aren't ready to have a big sign that says like, get your crack pipes here because not every community is ready for that. And that is okay. We want to support all communities on their journey, no matter what that is. But we also want to keep community members alive and thriving so that they can still access culture. They can still access support. They can still be a member of the community. You've talked a lot about the trauma and history of colonialism. So, you know, for hundreds of years, a lot of this pain and trauma has built up. It's not going to be overnight that we we deal with these things and resolve them. But I think it's so important what you've said to show that patience, to show that 
you are trustworthy, that you're welcome in the community. So thank you for sharing those examples. I, I take great heart in them and, and really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was really great, Nolan, to kind of hear some of Keisha's examples and advice and also sort of personal story. Like it, it does show that these different approaches to substance use treatment and care, you know, don't have to be in opposition. Yeah, Keisha's both her family experience as well as her personal experience highlight that both abstinence and harm reduction can both have positive results for people. There's a lot to unpack from like a colonial perspective, but I think Keisha did a great job of just always reminding us that it is the individual patient or their family or community that we are working with and it's really being with them at where they're at that we need to focus on in order to help with the healing. I love the idea of the tote box that turned into a, a beautiful shed with traditional medicines and harm reduction supplies. I think that is almost like a, a representative metaphor of how, how you might think creatively. If you're a clinician, it doesn't have to be in the box. It doesn't have to be over a front counter. And it, it can be both. It doesn't have to be either. As usual in these episodes, we end with some clinical pearls of wisdom that we'd love our listeners to remember and maybe think about putting into practice. I'm wondering, were there three things today, Nolan, that jumped out at you as pearls? For sure, David. I think, firstly, Indigenous harm reduction involves undoing and unlearning colonization. One way to translate this into clinical practice is to reconceptualize what constitutes risk factors for addiction issues. And remember that being First Nations, Inuit, or Métis is not a risk factor for addiction, but rather to acknowledge specific risk factors associated with colonization, such as being an Indian residential school survivor or experiencing racism that can lead to traumas and can precipitate and or perpetuate addiction issues. This change in perception leads us to our second clinical pearl, and that is being able to appreciate the protective factors that enable resiliency within Indigenous communities. Such examples could be knowing one's Indigenous language or being connected with an Indigenous organization. Both Clinical Pearls 1 and 2 involve intimate knowledge of Indigenous patients, including our cultures, and both shared and personal experiences. This is where involving an Indigenous liaison worker is helpful in gaining a deeper understanding of your patient. An Indigenous cultural worker will also be able to help connect both you and your client with additional Indigenous supports and information. Finally, harm reduction and abstinence-based programs are not opposing ideas, but rather they are on a spectrum and can complement each other. Therefore, a clinical pearl would be spending time to listen to our clients and understand their experiences and expectations, especially when discussing treatment options. The key is being non-judgmental and wanting to explore a patient's ideas and hopes with them. It is the relationship and trust that we create with our patients that allows us to provide optimal care. Thanks for those, Nolan. It's been really great hosting today's episode with you and uh, really great working with you on this podcast. I've, I've learned so much. Thanks, David. It's been great hosting with you as well. Thanks again to our guest today, Keisha Cleaver. If you're interested in learning more about Indigenous harm reduction and abstinence perspectives, you can find some additional resources in the show notes. Help us to create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link to it in our show notes. 
This podcast comes from the BC Centre on Substance Use, with production from Cited Media. We're grateful for the time and expertise shared by Indigenous partners and collaborators related to producing this season. A special thank you to the Indigenous Initiatives team at the BC CSU for their guidance and support. This program was made possible through financial contributions from the BC Ministry of Health and BC Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, with founding support from Doctors of BC and Health Canada. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>